Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to a meditation called The Serious Business of Heaven by Rev. Peter Yonker. The first meditation is titled The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. Welcome everyone to our worship service at LaGrave Avenue Christian Reformed Church. We are glad that you've come here on this evening to praise God and to hear his word spoken, and to enjoy his name being lifted up in worship. Uh, We're especially glad if you're here among us as a visitor. I imagine there's some visitors associated with this beautiful choir that we have here, maybe some grandmas and grandpas or relatives. A special welcome to all grandmas and grandpas and relatives. You are special people. Tonight, uh, you've also come to a special service, not just because the kids are singing, Uh, But because our service, instead of one long sermon, we'll have three separate meditations. And these three separate meditations are all orbiting around the subject of joy. Joy as it is revealed in Scripture. The first of those three meditations will be rooted in a reading from Matthew. It says, Matthew 13, 44 to 66. I'm only going to read 44 to 46. That was what I meant to say there. So please turn in your Bible with me to Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, and listen to these two parables of Jesus. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, went and sold everything he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. So many of parables, as you know, start with that familiar refrain, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then they compare it to something, and that actually happens in both of these parables here. But as I um, bring these parables out, instead of saying the kingdom of heaven is like, let me start on the opposite side. Let me start with what the kingdom of heaven is not like. Brothers and sisters, I declare to you, the kingdom of heaven is not like eating your Brussels sprouts. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the kingdom of heaven is not like eating your Brussels sprouts. He who has ears, let him hear. Now that's worth saying, because sometimes I think that is the way we choose to do our discipleship. That's the way we choose to follow Jesus. Christian people, and maybe especially Christian young people, think of following Jesus as a kind of medicine, a kind of bitter pill that you take now in preparation for a future reward down the road. Like a child eating your Brussels sprouts, you're six years old, You eat them because your mother says that you must eat them, and you eat them because your mother says the Brussels sprouts will make you grow up big and strong. And you want to please your mother, and you want to grow up big and strong, so you choke down those Brussels sprouts. In the same way, many people follow Jesus, thinking, well, there's a lot of other ways I'd like to live my life. I'd like to do these other things which look like more fun to me or look more pleasurable to me, but I know that's not going to end well, and I want to please my Father, and I want to have that reward, so I'll follow Jesus. Anyone who gives you that sort of impression about Christian discipleship has not read or has at least not understood these two parables. Following Jesus is nothing like Brussels sprout faith. 
Yes, this parable talks about making sacrifices. Both these people sell everything they have for the sake of the treasure, for the sake of the pearl, but they don't do it with their teeth clenched and their brows furrowed. The man sells everything he has, and in his joy, he buys the treasure. It is joy that motivates. It is joy that makes him buy this field. The joy comes before the sacrifice. The joy leads to the sacrifice. When he buys that field, he's not trudging. He's dancing to the bank. He can hardly wait to withdraw the money and give it over. Dallas Willard is eloquent on this point. Here's something he wrote. One of the things that has most obscured the path of discipleship in our Christian culture today is the idea that it is a terribly difficult thing, discipleship, that will almost certainly ruin your earthly life. And this can come through, especially when we start talking about the cost of discipleship. Have you considered the cost, we say? It is a terrible cost. And yes, discipleship is costly. Yes, it costs us everything we have. But the point, if you read the Gospels, is the cost is high, but it's still a bargain. You will never find a better bargain in your life than the price that you have to pay for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd be a fool not to lay everything down for the love of Jesus Christ and the work of his kingdom. Another analogy is in order. The kingdom of heaven is like a young man getting married to his beloved bride. He will have to make tremendous sacrifices in order to launch into this life with this person that he loves. He used to have poker night on Tuesday night with his buddies, and on Thursday night he used to play video games, and every other Friday they'd go to watch basketball together. And he won't be able to do that anymore. He has to give that up. But he doesn't do that begrudgingly. He does it gladly for the sake of this beautiful, intelligent woman that he loves to the bottom of his soul. He gladly lays down the money for the ring, and when he gets it, he can hardly wait to give it to her because he loves her so much. That's a description of the spirit of our discipleship towards Jesus, but it's also the description of something else. It's also a description of how Jesus loves us because he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. He is the bridegroom who is overwhelmed with love for us and can't wait to be in fellowship and communion with us. What will he do to seal our union? He will give everything he has. He will give his life for us. No one has ever loved us like that. It truly is our greatest treasure. The second meditation, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our second scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 20. Hear these words from Paul. Paul says to us, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, 
speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's start with, with a little Greek. Um, beginning in verse 18 of this passage, so right in the middle, the Greek in this passage is a very clear structure. Uh, you have this imperative sentence, which is, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you see that in verse 18. And then in the Greek, you'll have a series of four participles. And that structure is clearly meant to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And these four participles tell us what Paul says it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, what does it look like? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Now, what kind of joy is Paul calling for us or from us here? Is he, is he actually calling for us to be singing all the time? Always singing songs and hymns in our hearts to the Lord in every place? Is, is Paul calling us to be relentlessly cheerful? Is he calling us to be in right, outright, downright, happy all the time, as the old song said? Because that could be challenging for some of us. This is the grave, right? We're not, we're not one of those happy, clappy churches, right? We're not one of those relentlessly cheerful churches. We aren't jumping up and down and moving around and waving our hands all around. We like a little sobriety in our worship. And there's something good about that. Worship can't be all cheerfulness. You need lament as well as praise. You need some, some sorrow as well as joy. You need some silence as, as well as song. But it's hard to escape if you read what Paul's saying in the verses I just read. It's hard to escape the fact that Paul is calling us to joy, and he seems to be calling it from us in all places and in all times. In fact, those of us who prefer a little sobriety in our worship and, and in our piety need to recognize that Paul even uses the analogy of drunkenness to compare it to the Spirit. It says, do not get drunk on wine, Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be the thing that lets you lose your inhibitions. Let the Holy Spirit, not wine, be the thing that makes you break into song, says Paul. And we don't all have to be extroverts. But Paul seems to say that as we go through life and as we move around society, some of that joy of the Spirit needs to pour forth from us. And if this call for upbeat, joyful Christianity makes some of you nervous, that's okay. Maybe that's Paul's point. Because ultimately, Christian joy, expressed at all times and all places, is one of the best weapons, weapons, that we have against the darkness that surrounds us. I have a theory about what Paul is thinking of when he writes these verses. Now, it's just a theory. There's no way I can prove it. On the other side, there's no way it can be disproved. So it has that in its favor. But the theory is, I think that when Paul writes these words about singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's thinking of one particular event in his life. He's thinking of his time in the Philippian jail. Right? Paul and Silas get, go to Philippi, and they get thrown in the jail. 
and they get thrown not just in the jail, but in the darkest part of the dungeon, and they get clapped in irons, and they don't know what's going to happen to them because they haven't been properly sentenced, and it's pitch dark. And what do they do in the middle of the night? They sing. They sing hymns, and it says in Acts 16, you can look it up, that all the other prisoners are listening. That is a powerful image of Christian joy properly practiced. That is a powerful picture of Christian joy against the darkness. This is not phony cheerfulness. This is not phony piety. This is two people in the worst of circumstances, completely uncertain about where their life is going to go, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs against the darkness. And when they sing, the other prisoners lift their heads off of their mats to hear this hopeful sound and wonder where this hope can possibly come from in so deep a darkness. Your joy is a kingdom weapon. Sometime this week you will find yourself in a dark and cynical place. Maybe you have a cynical workplace. Maybe you'll be out in the playground and all of a sudden things will go bad and what was a normal game will lead to bullying. Maybe there'll be conflict in your family. What do you do in that moment? I don't think Paul's telling you to stand up and actually burst into song, but he is telling you to stand up and do something kind or do something generous or do something loving. Do some small thing in the face of that darkness, and that will be your hymn. And if you sing that song, I promise you, the other prisoners will be listening. The third meditation, Happy Endings. For our final reading, uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this is uh, not so much a text about joy, but it's about Jesus doing a miracle on a joyful occasion. Listen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also, been, had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding between 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best wine until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus' first miracle takes place at a wedding. A wedding. Is that biblically significant that it took place at a wedding? Does a wedding miracle mean something? I think that it does, 
and I'm going to get to that, but in order to get to it, I think it's important to think about, to realize that the place that weddings play in literature, popular literature is full of weddings, and weddings have a certain meaning, a certain role in the way they're used in literature. For instance, have you ever noticed how many um, happy endings, conventional happy endings, involve a wedding? Romantic comedies, always ending with weddings. And When Harry Met Sally, Notting Hill, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now, I know I'm dating myself with these, but those are the ones of my generation. But they all end in weddings. It's, it's, it's something that you do with the genre. Or think of great novels. Think of the novels of Jane Austen. How many of those literary classics end in weddings? Miss Elizabeth Bennet marries Mr. Darcy. And Emma marries Mr. Knightley. And Miss Eleanor Dashwood marries Mr. Edward Ferrers. It's definitely a convention in her writing, and it's still beloved. Happy ending, wedding. And then most strongly of all, and maybe the, the source of this convention, are fairy tales, right? Fairy tales are older than the kind of things I've just been talking about. In fairy tales, which are happily ever after kind of stories, a high number of them end with weddings. Prince Charming kisses Snow White, she comes back, they have a wedding, and they live happily ever after. The prince puts the, the slipper on Cinderella, they have a wedding, they live happily ever after. Belle kisses the beast, the beast turns into a handsome prince, they have a wedding, they live happily ever after. Rapunzel, um, Thumbelina, uh, Princess and the Pea, they all end with weddings happily ever after. This is the way of a fairy tale. So this is a big convention in literature. Happy endings are not popular with critics these days. If you write a book with a happy ending, or you make a movie with a happy ending, critics generally are not favorable in their reviews because they think they're unserious. They say, well, that's not how the world is. The world is hard, and life ends up in hard places. These happy endings, they're, they're unrealistic. And that this is sort of pervaded culture because you can hear it in the way we talk about fairy tale, for instance. If we say something is a fairy tale, what do we mean? We mean it's fantasy. We mean it's pie in the sky. It's too good to be true. It's wishful thinking. The gospel has a fairy tale happily ever after ended. John, in the literature of John, that's most clear. Jesus' first miracle at Cana is a wedding. How does the joining literature, the John literature end? Book of Revelation, right, it's the last book. What, how does that end? The wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. The bridegroom comes, takes his bride to himself, and there's a wedding, and we live happily ever after. Two of Jesus' parables that have images of the new creation use wedding imagery as well, right? The parable of the wedding banquet. How is the new creation characterized? As a wedding feast. Parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the same thing. The way the gospel structures it is that life is a hard journey of discipleship, and at the end, it ends in this wedding feast where we live happily ever after. And some people look at that structure of the gospel and they say, see, it's just a made-up story. It's too good to be true. 
It's pie in the sky. And sometimes they make this argument in a very sophisticated way. They say, well, listen, all cultures have these kinds of stories. Life is hard and chaotic and it ends in death, so all cultures have come up with, with fairy stories. They've come up with, with stories that they lay over life and, and they seem to bring hope and seem to bring happily ever after, and that's all the gospel is. It's just another one of those many hopeful stories that all cultures tell, fairy tale. I think these people have it backwards. I don't think that these fairy stories are a way to manufacture hope in this world. I think people write fairy stories because they sense the hope that really is in the world. The gospel isn't just another fairy tale. It is the true fairy tale. It is the true happily ever after story that really shall be in the end. The fact that all these cultures and all these people seem to tell these same kinds of stories isn't a sign that the gospel is untrue. It's a sign that somehow all these people, even if they don't know the name of Jesus, even if they've never read Scripture, they somehow sense that at the center of the world, the bridegroom is coming, and his love is strong, and joy will win in the end. That's actually what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien thought. Tolkien, of course, thought a lot about fairy tales because he wrote a really long one called The Lord of the Rings. And in an essay, a famous essay that he wrote called On Fairy Stories, he said this about fairy tales. He said, fairy tales finally deny universal defeat. They deny a tragic ending. Instead, they are, and Tolkien's a Christian, I was assuming you all know that, Instead, these fairy tales are a fleeting glimpse of joy, the joy beyond the walls of the world. When cultures all over the world tell these happy ending fairy stories, they sense the joy that is beyond the walls of the world. That joy that is beyond the walls of the world has a name and a face. His name is Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our bridegroom, and in him we will live happily ever after. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.